welcome to Typecast, Boston's new play podcast. I'm your host, Darren Evans, the managing director of Boston Playwrights Theatre, the home for new plays in Boston. In this podcast series, we'll be diving deep into the new play ecosystem of Beantown, talking with playwrights, directors, actors, and theater makers of all types about the process of bringing a new play into the world. In this episode, we are joined by Ali Sass to dissect her new play, Incels and Other Myths, which opens at Boston Playwrights Theater on December 2nd. Ali was born and raised just across the river in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and recently graduated from right here in our MFA playwriting program. Her plays include Zygote, a semifinalist at the 2021 Eugene O'Neill National Playwrights Conference, Modern Beauty, a National New Play Network MFA Playwrights Workshop finalist, Late Night at the Serpent, a Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival's John Cobble Short Play Award finalist. Her work aims to portray complex, hopeful, and flawed humans as they navigate their way through funny, terrible, and true circumstances. And she hopes someday to own a chic loft and two pit bulls. <laughs> How's that pit bull uh, count going so far, Ellie? Well, not, not quite there yet. We're at zero. But I, I think in the next decade, there will be at least one pit bull in my yeah in my vicinity i love i love them they're just my fa- favorite kind of creatures i don't know why <laughs> i i used to have one and i loved him very much so i'm i'm hoping to get like a big slobbery sweet you know buffalo dog <laughs> all right well now i know what to get you for christmas <laughs> yeah also with us today is katherine kitkat giorgetti my associate producer for typecast a current undergraduate student at northeastern university and an aspiring playwright Welcome to Typecast, Allie and KitKat. Thank you. How are you doing? Thanks for having us. All right, let's get right to the meaty questions. Allie. Yeah. I'd love to start with a two-part but basic question. What is an incel and what (laughs) made you want to write about them? It's a good question. Uh, So incel, the word is a portmanteau of uh, uh, the words involuntary and celibate. So it's an incel is someone typically a white cis male uh, who belongs to a group of men on the internet who define themselves as unable to find sexual or romantic relationships with women, uh, despite desiring them. Um, So it's a group that has really grown in this in the past decade uh, online um, and is very misanthropic, obviously, and uh, kind of like riddled with with a lot of rage and just sort of disparaging comments and memes and all this stuff about you know not not like kind of being the underdog guy that never gets the girl it's this whole sort of narrative that we've seen played out in a lot of different formats um but you know it the spectrum of inceldom sort of ranges from like this sort of clownish take on you know not being able to get the girl to actually very severe violent consequences um there have been a lot of domestic terror attacks again in the past 10 20 years that have been directly linked to this sort of growing incel movement online um so i was interested in in knowing more about this community when i learned the story of elliot roger who in 2014 drove his car into a crowd of people as an act of retribution for like his uh, perceived 
uh, sense of rejection by women. Um, he released this manifesto, which, you know, is a very harrowing thing to read through. And I don't recommend reading through all of it, but it gives you a sense of where this sort of anger came from for him. And I just couldn't believe that what what feels like just such like a sort of toxic mentality could could actually manifest into something so just so violent and something that any any person could have to pay the price for um and it just doesn't feel it it just feels so like i don't know like this warped sense of reality that i can't believe we live in that we like hear about these horrible things happening on the news and then we just go about our lives and keep going to the grocery store and keep doing all the things we're doing, just knowing that this could happen and that this exists. So I think it just became a sort of fixation for me to get to the root of what this thing was, what this sort of sense of hatred towards women really was and where it came from. And then it made me sort of look at all of the systems in place in our culture that, that feeds into this sort of mentality and understanding that, that, uh, you know, the, these these kinds of young men are not exceptions to an otherwise healthy society. They're actually the direct product of a culture that like directly validates their most violent thoughts towards women. Um, and I think my first thought was, what would happen if I if I wrote a story about a woman, a single mother who who learns that her son is getting involved in this community? And that was sort of the moment I just like hit the ground running and I, I became really obsessed with telling this story. So you mentioned that, um, that manifesto, I'm guessing that part of your process um, of writing this play included some research into yep. this, let's call it a subculture. Yep. I'd love it if you could talk about like, how do you, how did that work? What is your research process? In, mm-hmm. Is it like purely internet searches? Do you, did you like, watch some documentaries or, you know, like, how do you research and get to a point where you feel like you can represent these people accurately, even if fictionally? Yeah, yeah, totally. That's a good question. Well, yeah, so a lot of my research was, I mean, just kind of putting myself into these communities on, you know, like, as a sort of silent observer on Reddit threads, YouTube videos, you know, stuff like that. But then there was also a lot of literature I read uh, along the way. There's a book, I'm forgetting the author, but it's called Men Who Hate Women. And it's just sort of like a look into this, yeah, like sort of inceldom and then like men on the sort of alt-right side of the internet and all this stuff. And uh, it's written by a woman and yeah, I'm forgetting her name, but it's a very good book that sort of looks into all of this. It was looking at a lot of like, you know, rom-coms that I grew up with in the early 2000s that kind of fed into the narrative of like, you know, the nice guy never getting the girl and stuff that seems harmless at the surface value, but actually has like really misogynistic roots. So yeah, a lot of it was just looking again, because the, because the play really centers a woman, it's, you know, the, the first draft of this play started as what felt like really an expose of this community. And then slowly, especially through my work with Erica Turpening Romeo, who's the director, it became again a woman's story in her trying to piece together what all of this means and how her son could be part of something like this, which made it a little easier for me to write about because I, you know, was a woman writing about this community. And I think that you know, writers are often told like, write what you know. And I think I'm, I'm more of a proponent of know what you write, right? Because I think that write what you know can sometimes be, I, you know, I understand where that comes from, but it can be a little limiting, especially if you're a writer like me who really loves to just like 
completely dive into a totally different community and world, especially one that might be a little more dark and sort of hard to stomach. I think that, I don't know. I think that it's, it's not necessarily a piece of like journalism. It's not a documentary I'm making. It's a play that I am writing as a woman who's trying to digest and speak to and about this kind of community. So I think like me being a, a young woman, you know, or, you know, late twenties playwright, female playwright writing this, that is part of the performance of this play, you know, and I'm not trying to sort of like say that I know every single thing there is to know about this community, that I know the, the exact experience, you know, but I think because so much of the story now is about the, this mother who's sort of opening the door to the internet and just seeing what she finds, that's really what I was doing. And, you know, while, while this community may have its sort of intricacies, it's really not all that radical or different from, again, these sort of narratives that we're told in a lot of different ways about, you know, men who can't quote unquote, get girlfriends, stuff like that. Um, yeah. So sorry. I don't know if that answers the question, uh, <laughs> but yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I just like mostly was doing research on the internet. I was reading books and essays and again, mythology is a big, well, mythology is a big component of the play. And there's like a lot of, you know, the sort of status and commodification of women is rooted in a lot of myths and folklore as well. So this is this, this kind of narrative has been around for a long, long time. Yeah. So speaking of working with Erica and now that rehearsals have been going on, has seeing and hearing the play out loud changed anything in your writing and how has that yeah. impacted what you've been doing? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, the difference between just sitting with your script, looking at it on your laptop, and then being in this totally energized space with lights and sound and insanely talented actors, it's night and day. I mean, it's like, it's it's sort of the last piece of the puzzle in play development. Um, and, you know, especially in these last couple of years that have just been so fraught and weird and like hard for theater, I almost, I didn't forget, but I lost touch with that sort of like sensation of being like in that energy. And it's been incredible. Um, I've definitely learned a lot about the script. I've made new discoveries and new connections. And I was a little worried thinking, oh gosh, you know, am I gonna like see things and learn things that make me wanna rewrite total all scenes and like, you know, start from a different place or whatever. But actually it's been really nice in that the, you know, because Erica and I've put in so much work in developing the script together, you know, I've been writing it, but she has just been like such a guiding light for me in the dramaturgical work. I think we've really laid out a, a really solid um, foundation and world. And then from that grew all these like cool character connections. But again, the, the last piece is like what the actors bring to it. And some of these actors have had really amazing and profound insights and questions about the characters and about like, you know, yeah, dramaturgical questions, questions about the world that make me take a step back and think from a sort of different angle about the play. And, you know, is like, when is a play ever really finished? It's, <laughs> it's sort of the torturous part of being a writer in general. But I think that um, I feel excited to, at some point, maybe dive back in and like ask myself new sorts of questions, but I think for where the play is right now and 
for this theater, for this cast, for this, you know, production season, this is where the play wants to be for sure. Another big part of this game, we talked a little bit about this incel subculture, but there's another related subculture. Mm -hmm. Um, And a big part of it is this game Oracle that you've invented (laughs) for the world of the play. It's a fictional, Mm -hmm. massive multiplayer online role-playing game or as I like to call them, mm, or <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what the kids are calling them. Uh, are you a gamer, Ellie? Well, no. So I didn't grow up as a gamer, but I did this past summer. Uh, yeah, over last winter through the spring and into this past summer, I played a lot of Worlds of Warcraft, which is the MMORPG that I I based Oracle off of. Um, and you know, I also like have dabbled in EverQuest. I've looked at, you know, different sort of like fantasy realm games. And, you know, actually the internet is such a great resource for learning about these kinds of games because yes, you can make an account, you can play them on your own, but you can also go onto YouTube and like watch videos of people playing the games or Twitch, which is a good resource, you know. Um No, I didn't grow up as a gamer, but I did grow up very obsessed with like fantasy universes and like making up whole, you know, new atmospheres for characters to live in. And I think that once I got a sense of the language of, say, something like World of Warcraft, the kinds of characters you could play as, the kinds of battles and quests you go on, weapons and potions and all this stuff it gave me enough of a foundation to create my own language of the world. And, you know, I could spend a whole uh, another year just learning about MMORPGs and writing a play about that. But, you know, while Oracle is such a huge part of this play, I wouldn't say this play is necessarily a, a, a play about gaming. It's more a play about gender, sexuality, power, all these things. And Oracle is just sort of the vehicle for these themes to be explored through. Um, But of course I wanted to do my homework and do a good job portraying something that accurately feels like like it could be a real MMORPG. And thankfully there's been a lot of people on the team since the early workshop days who are gamers and who grew up as gamers. And they offered a lot of good insight and um, made suggestions and asked good questions. And Matthew, who's our assistant director, uh, knows a lot about sort of the gaming world and has like helped me a lot and verified that at this point, this, the play really does feel like this, you know, Oracle could be, could be a real game. So I feel if a, if a gamer is telling me that it's good to go, I I'm trusting him. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. You, uh, expert advice. Did yeah. you, I'm wondering, uh, just, I wanted to follow up quickly on that. Uh, when you were playing world of Warcraft, well, I guess were mm-hmm. two questions. Um, one is, did you play as a female character? Cause I know there's some gender swapping among the, the characters of your play. And if you did, did you encounter any of this sort of online misogyny that is part of this play? I, so I actually played as a couple different little avatars. I played as a, like a male warrior and as a female, like night elf creature. <laughs> um, Cause I, I wanted to see what the experience would be playing as these different characters. And the truth is, I mean, I think that for for a long time, for whatever reason, it was hard for me to like find the realms of Worlds of Warcraft where I could interact with other gamers. I, I guess Worlds of Warcraft has recently had like a sort of steep decline in in how many people are playing at one time. And for whatever reason, it was like I kept just interacting with the non-player characters, like the the sort of AI <laughs> um, like bot 
characters, which actually that that in itself was really helpful because there's a lot of um, there's like non-player characters in the in the play that are just played by voices of the game. And so getting a sense of what those voices sound sounded like was really helpful. But I didn't I didn't necessarily encounter any like misogyny or hate speech through through World of Warcraft. I'm sure it exists. But I mean, you know, one one like quick search of, you know, anything on a Reddit thread and you'll like find it in two seconds. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not um, hard to find. And there's a, you know, there's this, there's like a pro gamer that like games, he plays a lot of World of Warcraft and he makes all these videos on YouTube and he has like, you know, he's, he's played a version where he like kind of like is seeking out some of these sort of incelly guys and he makes videos where he's sort of like talking to them and whatever. And so I've watched those kinds of videos. So I think by proxy, I got a pretty good sense of it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but, and, and the play really, it was about world of work. I mean, like the game in the play was world of Warcraft, but I decided it was just too overwhelming to try to line up everything in the play with how it would really be going in the game. So I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna create my own game <laughs> and, and, you know, the rules can be what makes sense for this game. And it doesn't necessarily have to be what would be part of EverQuest or world of Warcraft or something like that. Yeah. And speaking of Oracle and these online games, um, in the play, we see Avery joining a guild, which is where he starts to encounter a lot of these um, incel mm-hmm. behaviors. And it's made up of Frankie, Benji, and Horns. And what I personally really like about these characters from when I've read the play, I haven't seen it yet, but um, is that they're so individualized while also being such a strong ensemble. And I was wondering what the process was like in striking such a perfect balance in ensemble while also being their own characters. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I mean, the thing I loved to write most are are fleshed out characters and dialogue, like group, like bantery sort of dialogue in a play is, is my favorite, favorite thing. I could like write, you know, three hours of just like four people talking. <laughs> but then, you know, that's when often my story just like goes off the rails and I like s- lose all sense of structure. But um, they were the very first voices really of this play. Um, well, I guess Avery was when I, in the first draft, but something that has remained a constant from the, like the first iteration of this play till now are these, these, these three gamers that encounter Avery. Um, and I think like, you know, I, I reflected on what I've observed about like, you know, male dominated groups and, you know, who's, who's the quote unquote alpha, who's, who's kind of like second in command, who's the goofball, whatever. And I think sometimes it can be helpful as a writer to just start with these sort of like tropey characters and then see how you can carve them out to be their own kinds of people. Because the truth is, is like, there is a sort of, I mean, we do follow in life, these sorts of like roles. And then you learn that like everybody has their own story, has their own totally like individual way of living their life. But I think that we, I don't know, I guess I sort of already like see the world as like a bunch of characters anyway. (laughs) So it comes pretty naturally for me, I think, to just like assign, assign roles to the characters I'm writing. And then like, that's the fun part for me is like, how can I whittle them into something that feels like totally unique to who they are? Excellent. Right now, we are going to take a short break to hear from this month's sponsor. But when we come back, We're going to really put Allie on the spot with more hard-hitting questions. We're going to talk about playwriting in general, and then we'll lighten things up with some fun and games. So stay tuned. We will be 
right back. I don't know about you, but with the holidays coming up, I can feel my stress levels rising. But who has time for a trip to the spa or massage parlor for some much needed relaxation these days? Well, our sponsor, Your Massage, has the perfect solution for us. Your Massage is a state-of-the-art app that brings the massage parlor to you. No traveling, waiting in lines, or exposing your oily skin to strangers. Simply choose the type of massage you want and place your phone on the body part you want massaged. Your Massage's custom deep vibration programs will do the rest. Choose from options such as deep tissue, sports massage, lymphatic massage, hot stone massage, stones not provided, prenatal massage, and even couples massage, two phones required. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, how can a phone possibly vibrate enough to be effective? Or, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But don't worry those sore brain muscles. Every Your Massage Massage is guaranteed to have a happy ending or your money back. Your Massage is perfect to treat yourself with or even give it as a gift. And we have a special deal for our listeners. You can get 46.7% off your first massage if you use our code BPT Holiday Massage 46.7 at checkout in the app. That's capital UR Massage in your favorite app store. Give yourself or a loved one the gift of relaxation this holiday season with your massage. Your massage is not responsible for exploding smartphones. Restrictions apply. All right, we are back. We're lucky to have two guests today who represent different stages in a playwright's evolution. Ali, you've just graduated with a MFA, Kit Kat. You are a current undergraduate, so... I'm just going to put you two together. We'll see, talk a little bit about how does one get from Kit Kat to Allie? <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess my first question is how, what advice do you have to get work seen, read and in front of people? Cause I feel like for me right now, right now, I just kind of, if I have something, it will be presented in a class or some other yeah. way to get to a professor. But once I leave school, and are you a, are you uh, an English major or what's your major? Right I'm now? a theater and history double major with a playwriting minor. That's awesome. Great. Um, yes, that's a good question. Well, so actually the question you just asked is, was really the biggest reason I wanted to go to grad school. Um, I had, I graduated the university of Vermont with a theater major, English minor in 2015. And I went to New York. Um, I spent three years there and I, I really enjoyed the work I was doing there, but a lot of it, you know, I was doing like one act play festivals. And so I would write, you know, say a 30 page play. And then you, there's a lot of festivals like this that exist in New York and it's, it can be kind of pay to play, but it's like, you know, it's like good enough exposure, this and that. But I just felt like it didn't make sense to me that I was working on these drafts. And then, you know, like you get accepted into these festivals, but then sometimes you have to like pay an entrance fee to put them on stage. And then they're like, oh, you're also going to be directing it. Oh, and you have to like make your own set. Oh, and uh, you like have to be in charge of box office sales, like all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, there has to be an easier way. I mean, no one ever said that being a player, it was easy, but like, there's certainly a route to try to take where you like actually make it into a career and you find the people that are going to help you. Um, so I think, 
I, I felt like I wasn't making the right kinds of connections during that time. And particularly because I, I loved my experience at UVM and I think our theater department was great, but I did, it wasn't necessarily a big name theater school, you know? Um, so I think, you know, in truth, if you coming from like even an undergrad program from one of those like big name schools, you're, you're set up in a sort of different way than say someone who goes to a state school or, you know, a smaller college or community college. I think that you know, in some ways, I wish that it wouldn't just have to be like, oh, go to grad school. That's where you're going to meet everyone because not everyone can go to grad school for a variety of reasons. I will say there's actually, though, a lot of fully funded MFA playwriting programs that exist. Like BU is a fully funded program. Um, uh, UCSD, you know, like there's there's plenty that that exist. And the number one thing I would say is try to go in as little debt as possible <laughs> because if you're thinking of grad school, it's like, that's definitely a good way to make connections, but also because it's not necessarily the most like consistent career path. And one that is always going to, you know, have that sort of assurance of financial stability, like setting yourself up where you're not going to have to be paying all this off. You know, um, I think that like making those like grad school was the place where I met, you know, it's where I met Erica, who's now directing this play, who's become like kind of honestly a life-changing <laughs> like collaborator for me. And it's where I've, I met all the playwrights in my cohort who were like, so, you know, talented and we all had such unique voices and everyone was, was doing really cool stuff. It's where I learned about the, you know, Eugene O'Neill national playwrights conference, all that stuff. So I, I guess my answer is grad school, but you know, one that you feel like you're going to have a sort of diverse array of students and faculty who you can go to. Um, and if not grad school, there's definitely resources like the Playwright Center is a website that that lists all these like submission opportunities, stuff like that. But I think even if not grad school, there's adult like writing centers. I know in Boston, there's Grub Street, uh, New York City, there's Gotham Writers Workshop, where I actually interned for a while. And you meet, I think anywhere where you can go, where you're going to meet other writers, that's the biggest thing I can say. Um, it's, it's a lonely kind of, I mean, I mean, writing is incredible, but it's also like, a, obviously it can be a really isolating experience to be working on your own stuff and any chance that you have to find other people to work with, like other people who are even in the same boat, people who know the right kinds of places to, to submit to, who be like, oh, don't, don't even bother with that one act play festival. They're just kind of like, you know, it's a cash cow, whatever those are, those are the people that you want to find. Cause it's, it's like, everyone's kind of going towards the same thing. So if you, if you find people that you trust, I think that's going to be the biggest thing. So any place where you can find other writers is what I would say. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. Um, you kind of already started answering my next question. Um, but do you have any other tools or resources? I know you've already mentioned a few, but that you think are important for playwrights to mm -hmm have in their back pocket and be able to utilize yeah. um, anything else? <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, the, again, the, the, the playwright center, that website is just like an excellent resource for, for theater companies to submit to and, and competitions and stuff like that. Um, I don't know, I guess, I guess, yeah, I already said it, but like a consistency in, I guess community and consistency. So like being in a, in a once a week writers group is, could, could be the difference between you finishing up your project this year or not, you know, like, I think 
no matter how determined you are, no matter, you know, even if you set great writing hours, whatever the case may be, I mean, nothing pushes me personally to write more than being sort of held accountable and having, and having people by my side. Um, because I'm not very good at holding myself accountable. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think like those are this, like people are the best resource, but then I'm sure I know there are other, yeah. I mean, the Eugene O'Neill national playwrights conference is, um, you know, like even just making it to the semifinals round or whatever, it's, that's kind of like, you know, if you've been working hard on something, I think that they, they help a lot of writers sort of get where they want to go. And um, yeah, so I guess I would just say writers groups, websites with, you know, those submission opportunities, stuff like that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, do you do anything that's not necessarily related to writing that you find does end up helping you? Um, I don't know, like knitting or just like something tactile sometimes helps me if I like am stuck. Is there anything that you do like that, that you find has no like direct correlation, but yeah, yeah. I discovered this over the pandemic. My roommate and I were going like a little stir crazy. Um, and this was, you know, before vaccines, everything. And so everyone was like really locked down, but she would play the drums and like she was a drummer and I would kind of just like start saying what I thought could be a monologue for a character I was writing and just like sort of rap speak it in this totally stupid sounding way, I'm sure, but it actually weirdly helped like having, um, or like I am, my mom's a pianist and, and when I would be on like sort of writing benders, I would come up for air and I would go to the piano and I would just like play some music and, I don't know, try to take my mind off of my writing, but magically when you stop thinking about your writing for a second, that's when usually like the, the ideas come for what you want to write about. Um, so I would like play on the keyboard or, or my mom's piano or something like that. And just like, I think the thing I really like crave when I'm, I'm say up all night writing or whatever, is I just want something that has like sort of immediate, like I can like, you know, drawing or playing piano or something where I can just make immediate art from it, you know, because writing a play is great, but you also, you need an audience, you know, that's like part of what makes it theater. And so to just have something that can be for you is really, is really nice that way. I also think just like not staying hauled up for too long in isolation is important. I, I can't go off to like a cabin in the woods and write for three days. I'll totally lose my mind and I will feel better getting back into my writing. If I've spent even just like two hours hanging out with friends um, I tried a lot in my first year of grad school to like totally distance myself from everybody so I could get my writing done. And while there is a kind of solitude that is helpful for writing, I think that it's for me, it's more helpful to just like have the inspiration of being around other people and like watching what they do and how humans behave, you know, for me, it's juggling. I definitely juggling. <laughs> juggling? I love that. That's a lie because I'm great. a terrible writer. And even if I did juggle. Uh, that wouldn't help. <laughs> um, but there are some playwrights who are amazing writers. I'm wondering, uh, Allie, who are the playwrights that you look to for inspiration these days? Like, who should our audience be yeah. reading and seeing? There's so many great playwrights that exist. Um, I feel really lucky, actually, again, to like live in. Well, it's a blessing and a curse to live in the age of the Internet as a writer because I get distracted so easily. So there's that. But I do. It is how I have access to so many 
amazing works from other playwrights. And, you know, I follow them on Instagram and just like hear what they have to say. And it's really cool. Um, I, Jennifer Haley, who wrote the play, The Nether was, she was a huge inspiration for me writing this play. I love, love, love that play. It's probably my favorite play. Yes. That was um, uh, produced a few years ago locally by uh flat, flat earth oh, really? theater. Yeah. Out in, out in Watertown. Yeah. Oh, cool. Excellent play. She, she's awesome. I think she writes about really cool stuff. I think she's just kind of like ahead of her time in a lot of ways and how she writes. Um, Sarah Porkalob, she's uh, she wrote the Dragon Cycle. That she, it was like a three part series at the ART. I think they're they're in the works of making the musical version of these sort of one woman shows. She would do that told like the sort of story of her family through generations, and it was you know all a one woman show, and it was like one of the best one woman one woman shows I've seen in a long time, and that's like one of the hardest kinds of theater to create, in my opinion, is a one person show. So Sarah Porkalob is really cool. Um, she has a fun Instagram presence also. So she's fun to follow. Um, Jeremy O'Harris, who wrote Slave Play. I think Slave Play is really incredible. And he's, I don't know, I guess the people I keep mentioning are like very active on the internet <laughs> and I'm pretty addicted to the internet. I'm like, obviously I'm very addicted to Instagram and all this stuff. So like, they're probably in my feed the most. Um, the playwright who I really fell in love with in my early twenties, maybe when I was 20 or 21 years old was Annie Baker, um, who wrote in this sort of you know, she's become known for this like piercing naturalism, but also mixed with this like weird sense of magic that I was like totally enamored by and in love with when I first discovered her. And I saw the flick on stage. I think in that moment, I was like, I want to do this. I, I need to put this kind of thing on stage. This is so cool. And in my earlier work from a few years ago, you can see how influenced I am by her. And a lot of people would be like, do you know the playwright Annie Baker? I think you would really like her. And I would just be like, oh God, <laughs> Allie, you have to start, like, you have to stop trying to write just <laughs> like her because it's embarrassing. Um, but she, she, yeah, she was huge for me. And like knowing like, it's okay to put conversations on stage that are a little like rambly and weird and like people speak in weird ways and not everything has a purpose or a goal. But, you know, I, th I think like I grew up acting also and you're always, always told like, what's your objective? What do you want? What, what are you trying to accomplish in the scene? And that's all really important. But, you know, humans like go on and on about how they feel and think and all this stuff. And they don't always know why they're even saying it. And I think like she was one of the first playwrights I saw, you know, a contemporary playwrights, at least who really captured that. And that was pretty, pretty mind blowing to me. So, yeah. I love Annie Baker to death. Me too. She's the best. She's I mean, so unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. She's really yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, oh, also the mountaintop by Katori Hall is one of my favorite plays as well. It's like, I've, I've never seen it. I would love to see it, but it's just reading. It feels like total magic. So that was, that's cool. So anyway, yeah, those are my, those are my people. Those are, I mean, amazing <laughs> answers. Yeah. Um, but Allie, this is a podcast about playwriting. And so uh, it's important that we actually, you know, write a play, I think, during the podcast. So, <laughs> oh so we're going we're gonna to craft a new short scene uh, through a process that I'm calling Bad Libs. Oh, God. And uh, I've got a, a page and a half here of dialogue featuring two actors. Certain words are missing. I'm going to ask you to fill in those missing words, sight unseen, okay. then... Kit Kat and I will read the completed scene together. Okay. Are you ready for playwright 
bad lips. Yes, where's this dialogue coming from? I'll Is- tell you, it's a okay. secret, but we'll tell okay. you after. Okay, great. Uh, last last time was, was death of a salesman. So I can tell you that it's not going to be that. Okay. <laughs> Is it All the right. principal? Don't tell me. I'm excited. Right, I'm not going to tell you. Okay. All right, here we go. What I need is four adjectives. That's right, four in a row. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. Um, slimy, um, smelly, <laughs> um, diabolical, pure. Amazing. All right. Oddly enough, my next one is also an adjective, so I hope the well is not dry. Smashing. All right. How about a noun? Statue. And another adjective? Mm, Joyous. And another noun? Octopus. (laughs) Uh, And another noun? Hut. How about a number? Three. And I'm going to need a body part. Mm, Pinky. And then a different body part. (laughs) Uh Eyebrow. Excellent. All right, we're we're closing in on the end here. Okay. I need an, a noun. A uh, hairdryer. Great. And a place. Manhattan. And an amount of time. Seven years. Excellent. And then finally, last one is a casual or slang way to say yes. For sure. Great. All right. Well, that is all of our. Uh, all of our parts of speech filled in. Kit Kat, are you ready to read this scene? <laughs> I am so ready. I'm excited. Oh, God. All right. Well, uh, so in, in a little podcasting twist, Allie, we decided this week not to do someone else's play, but actually to help you with incels and other myths. Oh, my God. I so, cannot believe this. All right. This is a short scene. Uh, I think... You can tell already that it's guaranteed to be a big improvement over <laughs> what we started with. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'll get you the copy of this. You can get them into the rehearsal room. Immediately. Great, great, great. I'll, I'll make sure the actors get a hold of this by tonight. All right. Excellent. All right. Kit Kat, are you ready? I will. Uh, I will start us off. Yeah, let's do it. All right. And. You do not want to send Avery here. <laughs> oh, no. What do you mean? Westbrook is a school just riddled with slimy, smelly, diabolical, pure young men. It still works somehow. Okay. Avery's been smashing his whole life. <laughs> no. These kids are at a different level. If I had a statue, I wouldn't send him here. <laughs> what kind of level? Um, joyous. <laughs> Tell me. Okay, well. Did anyone at Lakewood tell you about the octopus? No. About a month ago, a student at Preston Country Day, that's our sister school, received this chart from an anonymous email. It's the names of each hut in their senior class. (laughs) It's a ranking made by three of our seniors, a breakdown of each physical attribute, and then an overall score. Pinky, legs, eyebrows? Upper arm? Upper arm, uh uh-huh. And here, notes about any existing knowledge of her hairdryer. What she's been known to do, what she'd probably do. Jesus, a list like this went around Manhattan, but it wasn't like a stock portfolio. (laughs) 
They were suspended for seven years. <laughs> They're all still here? For sure. <laughs> and see. Wow. Wow. This is like... If incels were put in the washing machine and like tumbled around and came out on the other side and we were in some totally warped alternate universe. But like, <laughs> I kind of want to see this play. It's got a lot going for it. It, it um, well, maybe not this that This can much. be the sort of fan fiction, maybe. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. That's a great, yeah, just like the internet. It's perfect, right? Totally. Internet fan fiction. Totally. Allie, thank you so much for talking with us today. Do you have a website where folks can go to uh, learn more about you and your writing? I do. Um, Well, thank you so much for having me. And yes, AllieSass.com, just my name. That is pretty easy. AllieSass.com, perfect. Friends, Incels and Other Myths opens on December 2nd, right here at Boston Playwrights Theater, 949 Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. Tickets and information can be found on our website, bostonplaywrights.org. It runs for only two weeks, and our capacity is lower than normal due to COVID precautions, so don't sleep on this one. I have to tell you, actually, KitKat could tell you, because she runs our uh, box office as well, that uh, these shows are selling out. They, uh, they The tickets go fast, so if you want your ticket, do not wait. Get to that website and uh, get them now. And KitKat, thank you for being on air this month after being behind the scenes and for all your help putting this podcast together. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you, dear listeners, for listening in. I'm Darren Evans, and this is Typecast. Today's episode was produced and edited by Darren Evans with invaluable assistance from Catherine KitKat Giorgetti. The theme music is Off to Osaka, and the final credits music is Malt Shop Bop, both by Kevin McLeod. You can find his incredibly wide-ranging music at incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. This episode's parody commercial was written by KitKat, who also created our Playwright Badlets. For more information about Boston Playwrights Theater, visit our website at bostonplaywrights.org.